Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What's the difference between an onion and a clarinet? I don't know. What? Nobody cries when you cut up a clarinet. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. One hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from musician Ted Leo. That'll help break the ice. He'll be here later to DJ a politically conscious dinner party. Oh, yes. Plus, writer, director, and actor Lake Bell tells us everything about her new movie, I Do Until I Don't. The title says it all. Mm -hmm. Also coming up, Jenny Zhang, author of the new book Sour Heart, shares a list of her favorite sour things. We learn about a Middle Eastern dumpling, which you shouldn't call a dumpling. And Emily Post's great-great-grandkids answer your etiquette questions. Plus, Chris Taylor, the band Grizzly Bear, recommends some music. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Boats are being navigated through city streets to get to those stranded by Tropical Storm Harvey. Thousands of people turned out in Berkeley, California, to protest a rally planned by white supremacists. World champion Floyd Mayweather beat Conor McGregor last night. Now for something you might not have heard, we're joined by Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor at the Parish Review. Look for their fall issue coming out soon. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I want to talk about the auctioning of Vivian Lee's personal library. Oh, right. Vivian Lee, the, the great British actress. Yeah, star of Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And for those Gone with the Wind fans out there, there is a signed copy of the novel by the author Margaret Mitchell. Mm-hmm. There is Vivian Lee's own copy of the script mm, inscribed wow. by David O. Selznick, although his inscription was stolen. <laughs> And um, wait, so you're getting a signed copy of the script without the signature? Yeah, it's it's not going to go for quite as much. They they estimate it's fifteen thousand pounds. Wait, doesn't everyone have a signed copy of a script without a signature? Yeah, it's not hard to find. <laughs> Isn't that just a Technically, you could look. Apparently, the page is torn out. Right. Okay, I see. And they can tell. There's an indentation. <laughs> Are there any non-movie related items? Yeah. In addition to the Gone with the Wind stuff, there are a bunch of her diaries and personal letters, which are pretty juicy. Oh, Mm -hmm. do tell. Well, there's one entry right around the time when she was leaving her husband, Herbert Lee Holman, for Laurence Olivier. Okay. She writes, told Lee, and then six days later, left with Larry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there it is. Profound. Boom. That's well, a Well, you need to write that down because you don't want to forget that you left your husband for Lawrence Olivia. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, like, that's... You need to make a note. Otherwise known as Monday. <laughs> oh, stars are just like us. Sadie Stein, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a field gone fallow, which we irrigate with booze. Mmm, expensive. First, the history part. Around this time, back in 1907, the greatest mystery writer ever took on a criminal case himself. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Arthur Conan Doyle apparently learned a thing or two from his creation, Sherlock Holmes. It all began when Doyle got a letter from one George Adalji, a guy who'd just been released from a three-year stint in prison after being found guilty of cruelly harming farm animals in an English village and supposedly threatening to hurt women, too. But George insisted he was innocent, and he asked Doyle to help prove it so he could clear his name and go back to work as a legal solicitor. Doyle was used to folks asking him to solve real-life mysteries, 
Sometimes they even thought Sherlock Holmes was a real guy and wanted to be put in touch. Usually, Doyle ignored the requests, but his wife had just died. And George's case seemed just the thing to take his mind off the grief. Doyle dug into the mostly circumstantial evidence and became convinced George, who was of Indian descent, had been the victim of a racist legal system. What's more, he noticed George had terrible eyesight. How could he have snuck around a farm in the dead of night to commit these crimes? When Doyle published his findings in British papers, readers clamored for George to be exonerated. This did not endear Doyle to the local police. In fact, the constable considered him an annoying amateur, making a big deal out of a case he'd closed years ago. Even so, thanks to Doyle, George was eventually granted an official pardon, though not an official apology. It should be noted Doyle wasn't as great a detective as Holmes in one big way. He never proved who really did harm those farm animals. But the case eventually led England to create a court of appeals, so the unjustly convicted wouldn't have to ask famous novelists to set the record straight. So that was the history lesson. Now for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Cal Robb. He is bartender at The Botanist in Birmingham, England, where George Adalji worked as a solicitor. Cal, thanks for joining us. Hi there. How's it going? It's going well. Had you heard this story before? Uh, No, I hadn't actually. It's the first time I'd heard about it. But you are familiar with Sherlock Holmes, right? (laughs) I didn't know if that was just a trick that the British Export Council played on Americans. Yeah, I am familiar with Sherlock Holmes, yeah. When you think of Sherlock Holmes, who do you picture? Ooh, I don't know. I've been watching loads of the BBC drama that's based on him, so loads of Benedict Cumberbatch. For some reason, I always thought of Jeremy Irons, and I just checked this before I got on the phone. He's never played Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I was going to say, why Jeremy Irons? He just looks like the quintessential British smart guy with dark hair, but I mean... Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, originally I thought of Beckham, but I was too embarrassed to tell you that. Well, yeah, I definitely don't (laughs) think he's done any sort of detective work. (laughs) So hey, tell us about this cocktail that you created based on the story. Yeah, so it starts off with 30 mils of silver tequila. Um, Why are we starting with tequila for this drink? So the reason we're using tequila is because if you've had a rough night and you're drinking in a bar, you kind of want to knock back a couple of shots of tequila and end your night with a blur. I I love the uh, Birmingham bar logic here. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, what's next? Um, It's then got a mix of around seven and a half mils of watermelon syrup and seven and a half mils of vanilla syrup. Okay. And you add to that 50 mils of watermelon juice. Okay, I have to say though, when I think of England, I don't think of tequila and watermelon. So the idea is that watermelons grow really well here. Ah. And watermelons were one of the botanicals, again, that were used quite heavily in the early 1900s, which is when Arthur Conan Doyle's case first came alight. Very clever. See, I knew you guys had water covered. I just didn't know you had melons there. <laughs> yeah. So you have the tequila, you have, the, you have a watermelon. Anything else in the drink? The vanilla syrup takes a little bit of that edge off, and the peach liqueur just brings it a sweetness and sits at the back of your palate. All right. And what are you calling this drink? Uh, it's called the Court of Appeal. All right. I see. Oh, wait, wait, is there a pun embedded in there? Like a watermelon peel? Yeah, as in A-P-P-E-E-L. Oh, cow. That's another crime you just committed, and we're going to have to start the whole court process all over again, I'm afraid. <laughs> cow Rob of the Botanist Bar in Birmingham, England. Enrico, kind of an amazing tale, right? Uh, totally. That would be like him. Stephen King investigating that creepy noise in the basement. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> That's true. Or getting John Grisham to actually argue your speeding ticket. Which he would end up writing a book about. Sure. It'd be about 500 pages. Matthew McConaughey would star in the movie. Uh, folks, if you want to sleuth out the recipe for that cocktail, you will find it at dinnerpartydownload.org. The ticket. <laughs> All right, we've made small talk, sipped a cocktail, and now, how about some music for this party? That's a swell idea. And here with song suggestions is punk rock darling Ted Leo. He has been churning out anthemic, politically aware music since the 80s, including six LPs with his acclaimed band Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. He paired up with Amy Mann a few years back with a band called The Both. And this month, he releases his first solo album in 10 years. It is called The Hanged Man. Here's Ted with a playlist that'll make you dance and think. Hey, my name is Ted Leo, and this party that I'm throwing is going to be in my new kitchen. I've just been through eight months of a hellish renovation, and I'm eager to show it off and cook for people and talk about things. So here is my dinner party soundtrack. The first track is by a singer-songwriter from Montreal, early 70s. His name is Michel Pagliaro, and the song is Loving You Ain't Easy. From what I understand, most of Pagliaro's oeuvre is actually in French, but this particular song is in English. The first verse goes, uh, Pitching a ride you want to do anything you want to do. And then I think he says, Just be bright in your way. Just be bright in your way is a phrase that I wouldn't necessarily think to say, but I really love it. It's like, I'm not trying to own you. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I just want to be in your sphere. You know, I just want to be in your circle. So whether he actually says that or not, he may say, just keep riding your way or just be right in your way. I'm choosing to believe that he says, just be bright in your way. Song number two is called Komigen Lena by a Swedish singer-songwriter named Håkan Hellström. Håkan Hellström in Sweden is a huge star and another thing that I respect about him is that he sings in Swedish. I don't know much of what it actually says, but I do know that the chorus essentially means, come on, Lena, what else would we be doing? Hawkins sings with a, a yelpy voice that uh, is a quality that I think I sometimes had in my own younger days. With him, it's a yelp that cracks with emotion, and it kind of gets me, you know, it hits me in the chest in a way. With these two, with the Pagliaro and the Hawkins Hellstrom, I would hope that it would kick off some conversations about misheard lyrics or just the raw emotion of music in the way that a song that you don't actually understand what's being said, but you get it. Song number three is called Babylon Makes the Rules. It's by English reggae band Steel Pulse. 
And they wrote some really beautiful music, and it uh, sparked a lot of thought for me over the course of my life. Reggae has always been a big part of my music listening catalog. I mean, it's no secret that I'm pretty white. Just to paint the picture for those of you out there listening, I have Irish colored hair, but I have Italian hair distribution. So it's really, it's a gro- it's not a pretty scene in here, but it's very white in any way you slice it. My people are in the a really important thing that I'll spend a lifetime getting my head around because I am white is the idea of what we gently call implicit bias, what I think we can more explicitly call institutional racism, institutional oppression. And I thought about this song because, you know, the, the specter of Babylon in particular in reggae music is this metaphor for just call it white society, you know, call it anything that exerts oppression on people of color. And just this simple idea, you know, Babylon makes the rules. Uh, the chorus is Babylon makes the rules while my people suffer. You know, I would hope that at some point in this party that I'm having, it wouldn't bum people out too much to, <laughs> to begin discussing this. You know, for the fourth song, honestly, I would not put one of my own songs on a soundtrack, but, uh, you know, for the purposes of this particular show, I, <laughs> I indulged. The song that I chose is William Weld in the 21st Century, a reference to Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate in the 2016 election, William Weld. William Weld sees the 20th century the song is ultimately about a privileged class of men not willing to risk anything to actually listen to people who are less privileged than they. Doesn't bend as he walks down the jetway You know, I understand that some of these topics are verboten for good company and conversation, but these are topics that make good company and conversation to me. If I'm hosting the party, this is what we're talking about. Men of breeding and men of sanity, men serving men out of time. A dinner party soundtrack from Ted Leo. His new solo album, The Hanged Man, is out September 8th. All right, coming up, multi-hyphenate Lake Bell provides us with her wisdom about love and marriage, the good, the bad, and the unspeakable. In the marriage, they're going to call you out on your... Can you say... Sure, we'll bleep it. All right. They can call you out on your... That and more when the dinner party load returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your audio atlas to the best in arts and culture this weekend. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, author Jenny Zhang tells us why she loves mean girls. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it is Lake Bell, who is one of the more interesting resumes in Hollywood. Most know her as an actress. She was lawyer Sally Heap on the series Boston Legal. Of course. And you can see her now in the Netflix series Wet Hot American Summer 10 Years Later. 
but she also models and was the automotive critic for The Hollywood Reporter. That is a true story. She says she's a big fan of Toyotas. Mm. Lake also writes, directs, and stars in her own indie films, the latest being the comedy I Do Until I Don't, in which a documentarian films three married couples in various stages of dysfunction, hoping to prove the concept of long-term monogamy is a sham. Lake plays the timid Alice, who's half of one of the couples. Mm. When she came to the studio, Rico started the conversation like this. I feel like we should mention at the top of this interview that you yourself are married. I did it. So what (laughs) part of that made you want to dissect the institution like an insect? Well, I started the process of writing this movie and the inception of the idea really did come from not being married. I came at it from a very jaded place when I started writing the movie. and This was pre-marriage? Pre-even meeting Scott. So I thought, you know, it's archaic institution. Mm. You know, when it was first conceived, it was a contract. It was like landowners. You know, it was about farmland or whatever. So you were actually the documentarian in oh, yeah. this movie. I was much more of a Vivian, uh, who's the documentarian. I was the pessimist. Betrothed is a word from the 1500s. I mean, the bloody Ming dynasty was still around. Our problem is we live too long. I mean, if we were all dying at 45, then fine, yeah, of course, go get yourself betrothed. But now we insist on doing Pilates colonic retreats and vitamin drips, convicting ourselves to a dreadfully long existence with one partner for half a bloody century. But I think every unromantic person deep down really hopes to be proved oh, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every cynic is definitely yeah, romantic. Yeah, like I, I was so hoping to be wrong about it. And then I met Scott Campbell, my husband. Um, midway who, through the process of midway. making the film. Midway. And thank God, because like he really taught me a tremendous amount about the kind of bravery of committing. Um, it's scary. <laughs> did it? Did the movie change significantly when this happened? Yeah, my opinions of the positive aspects of a union like that changed. To live it and to understand it from the inside out um, was a vastly different thing, and and you know invigorated all kinds of feelings, but also comedic moments and uh, realities that uh, I just would not have had. Is there, is there a scene in the movie that comes out of the marriage, perhaps? I mean, I'm not gonna deny that the <laughs> scene of them in bed, you know, when she tries to get a game going. Your and, your character? Yeah, when Alice is like, hey, you know. She's she's trying to initiate Noah, sex, let us in, say. Let, let's say that. Let us say that. Can we say that? <laughs> Sexual intercourse is being initiated. And Noah, played by Ed Helms, is sort of like, oh, I already did it. Yeah, I already took care of myself, quote unquote. I took care of myself. You know, that may or may not have really happened at some point. (laughs) I'm sorry, Scott. Um, But clearly the marriage survived, so it's okay. Yeah, and by the way, that's real. You know, I had a lot of fun with all that really real and excruciating sometimes portions of marriage. I, I'm, I'm, I'm already, I, I took care of myself. I already did it. What? When? Well, I, no. like just now. I didn't hear anything. How do you do that? I you didn't know. even feel the well, bed shake. I, when I do it myself, it's really silent and efficient. So what I learned from this whole experience and investigating marriage was that the privilege of a committed relationship is evolution and growth. 
So, mm-hmm. like, if you're single and you're just like, eh, when the going gets rough, I'll, let's bail out, you know, mm-hmm. then you'll keep coming up against issues and be allowed to kind of look away from them and not actually, like, grow as a human. And then in a marriage, you vowed and you can't go any damn where. Mm-hmm. And they're going to call you out on your, can you say? Uh, yeah, sure. We'll bleep it. All right. Um, <laughs> they can call you out on your. I'm totally distracted by the fact that I'm going to get bleeped. No, Um, that's okay. Okay, fine. So, for instance, the terms always changing is like, for me, it was like an aha moment, right? So The terms of a relationship. Yeah. yeah. Like, you say, well, today, you know, this is how this relationship functions. And then tomorrow, everything could change. And that's, Mm. I'm a planner, and I like lists, and I, you know, I make movies, and I just like, you know, I like to have just checklists and, like, homework and know exactly what we're doing tonight, tomorrow morning, in the midday. You know, like, I just need to know what the plan is. Yeah, you're the kind of person that actually says aloud a lot, like, okay, what's the plan? Oh, my God. Where are we going tonight for dinner? My husband always jokes with me because I always say, here's what I'm going to say. Here's the thing that I'm going to say right now, which is what I'm going to say. <laughs> You're He's like, like I'm planning about the very sentence that I'm about to say. <laughs> so it's like everything is like, yeah. here's what we're going to do. But <laughs> but that doesn't work in a relationship. Obviously. But no. So, you know, you can say, here's what I think we should do. But I'm open to hearing your side. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's what I've learned. Terms always change. Since we're on the subject of uh, art imitating life in this movie, your husband um, is a tattoo artist. In, in the film, there is a character, not your character, but there is a character who has a husband who has full sleeves of tattoos. And she mentions that her husband is constantly getting hassled by police and arrested with no probable cause because he has tattoos. Is that Scott? Does that happen? <laughs> it does. Um, there is a sense of like profiling. You know, that came from a real thing that happened where Scott called me one day and he's like, <sighs> He always starts with like, okay, so don't be alarmed, but I'm like, what? You know, he's like, I'm at the police station. (laughs) Um, I was like, what happened? He's like, well, I was walking the dog without a leash and I got arrested. And that really happened. So that just seems incredible. If that were the case, then that means every chef and like cocktail mixologist (laughs) in America would be getting arrested constantly. You're absolutely right. But they have that like cute white coat and that makes them look Uh, chic. Um, And then that's the cue that like, "Mm, no, they're just foodies. They're not criminals. Maybe your husband should should just walk around wearing a chef's hat. So much black. No, he wears head to toe black and then just like neck to toe tattoos and a gold tooth. (laughs) Wow. So he's owning it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Here are standard two questions we ask everyone on the show. The first one, what is the question if we were to meet you at a dinner party that you would least like to be asked? Um, You're tired of being asked. uh, (laughs) I like my first one was in my head. I was like, how you been? And I was like, what? That's terrible. That's a nice thing. Yeah, come on. Um, All right. The least favorite thing is like, what have I seen you in? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, because it's like I'm not gonna go through my resume right now. Like, yeah. It's like my least favorite question. Uh, our second question is: <laughs> Tell us something we don't know. Um, something that you don't know about anything or about yourself. About myself, I well, I genuinely was born with Lake Bell was my, was the name on my birth certificate because a lot of people really are like adamant that it was a stage name that I got off the boat <laughs> in in the boat the boat to L.A. <laughs> And that I was like, you know what? I've made it to Hollywood. I'm going to take my name from Rachel McGillicuddy and I've turned it into Lake Bell. 
Um, but it re- those two nouns are straight up bona fide birth certificate name. What was the uh, the provenance of that? Name? Well, my dad's last name legally is Siegel. He's Harvey Siegel, one of the great names ever. Yeah. And my mom is Robin Bell. And when I was born, my mom was like, I just think Blake Bell sounds better. Wow. I just, it has a better ring to it. That's very progressive. <laughs> I know. It was very progressive. Well, they were on the verge of divorce and he was like, whatever you want. <laughs> he was like, I'm progressive slash please don't divorce me slash it's fine. We're probably better off this way anyway. Lake Bell providing another reason she might have been interested in the institution of marriage, which she dissects in her new movie, I Do Until I Don't. It hits theaters this week. And there was lots more to that interview we couldn't air, including Lake's professional advice on choosing a family car. Uh-huh. When stuff like that happens, we put it on a special podcast-only episode that you can only get if you subscribe to our show digitally. Find us on Apple Podcast or your favorite app. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. All right, Rico. So recently I went to a new restaurant in New York that serves kuba, Hmm. which is a Kurdish treat that's essentially a ball of dough made of bulgur or rice and filled with lamb, beef, or vegetables. And you brought me back dozens of them to eat. How nice of you. No, I ate them all while talking to chef Melanie Shurka. (laughs) She owns the place and serves these morsels Israeli style in Mm. beautiful broth like beet, Persian chicken, chard, and more. All right. So it's broth with these kuba? Which they sound like Middle Eastern dumplings, I guess. Uh, Well, I'd be careful with that terminology. When we started our conversation, Melanie had one request. That we try to just call it kuba and not call it a dumpling. Oh, sure. Well, let's start right there. So in a lot of the media coverage of this spot, they do call it a dumpling. So dumpling is the word we have for something inside something. And that's really what it means. The problem with the word dumpling is that most people, it, it makes them think of something Asian. Um, every culture has something that's something stuffed with something else. And I really hope that from this restaurant, we can have the word kuba be part of you know, the everyday language and start calling it kuba, just the way we call it a burrito and not, I don't know, a wrap. So looking at your menu, you have items informed by Kurdistan, you have items from Iraq, Syria. Um, For someone who doesn't know about the cuisine of that region, that vast region, is this a universal item that you would find in all these cultures and countries? Yes. Most people know kibbe, which is what they think of in this fried bulgur wheat uh, formed into like a roundish shape with uh, ground beef and pine nuts on the inside. And that's the one that you find in Lebanese, Syrian, Palestinian, Israeli. You find it in all of those cuisines. And then there's kuba, which is the same word. It's just the way it's said in the Kurdish accent. Um, and they do it in a broth. Uh, so you find specifically the Kurds, the Iraqis, and the Syrians do a version in a broth. Palestinians do one as well, all different ones. And I'm focusing on that one, even though we do the fried one as well, just because you can almost not get it anywhere in the U.S. Tell me about your relationship to this dish. So I'm a New Yorker, born in New York. Uh, my father's from Israel. My grandparents are from Iran. Uh, I grew up with Israeli and Iranian food. Uh, and actually, specifically Cuba, when I was 16, I had an Israeli-Iraqi boyfriend who told me, you have to have my mother's Cuba. It's the greatest thing in the world. People wait in line for it. Uh, and I thought I knew everything about Middle Eastern cuisine, but it was nothing I've ever had 
And I finally had it, and it's something that I remember savoring over this dish. And I remember how the beef from the Cuba shell poured out of the Cuba into this beet broth and sort of changed the consistency of the broth. Um, and it's something that I really love. So how did you arrive here? In this? So this is a journey of like five years. About five years ago, I decided I wanted to open up a restaurant. Uh, previous to that, I worked as a server for years, and I loved it. Uh, I actually had gotten my law degree and became a lawyer. I too have a law degree that I pay for on the 15th of every month, but don't you? <laughs> so I'm happy I did it, but I very quickly realized that I'd rather talk to you about your creme brulee and how it is and how it's not versus being in court. And very quickly I was like, this is where I need to be. I love being of service to people. I also just like to be able to wear more casual clothes. <laughs> I like wearing more casual clothes too. That's a huge bonus yeah. to this industry. I did spend three weeks in Israel uh, under like learning Cuba authentically with a Syrian woman, with an Iraqi woman, a Kurdish woman, and two different restaurants, and then spent a year developing the recipes and saying, you know what, I like the way this, the Cuba dough is made by this woman, Etty, but I like the meat that was done at this restaurant, Rahmo, and I took little things here and there and developed, which is definitely authentic Cuba, but there's definitely my twist on it, and sometimes little undertones of a little Persian-ness that's added to the flavor. Okay, so I'm gonna just eat some of this, because this is just yes. this gorgeous, gorgeous, rich red color. This is the Selek broth. Uh, Selek means beet in Hebrew, uh, and it's a beet soup that's very traditional in Iraqi culture and it has beef kuba in it. However, the beef kuba is called siska. Um, traditionally, the beet broth would come with a, a rounded ball-like kuba uh, with grounded beef on the inside. We're serving it with the siska, which is the Kurdish kuba. It's like a slow-cooked meat that we traditionally is, um, they do it with oil, but I do it by slow cooking it for over three hours. And uh, we pull the beef uh, and then fill it into this bulgur and semolina dough. So we serve that one. You can have it in any of the broths. All right. So I'm going to try it here in the beet broth. I'm going to bring it closer to me instead of... I'm wearing a white shirt and eating beet broth. <laughs> wow. That is exquisite. Yeah. Mm, I feel like... Sometimes when I eat little morsels like this, I know what it's like to be a wild animal capturing something yeah. <laughs> and biting into it, and it's just so primal and satisfying. That's exactly what I want you to feel. And there's more, I guess I'm, I'm assuming more broth is coming into, like, is now blending with this beet while I'm eating. Definitely, yeah. So that's sort of the experience. You taste the, I always taste the soup first, then have, I cut into the, into the kuba with the spoon, and you just get a little bit more flavor uh, and it's changing the flavor because there's flavor in uh, the beef that's not in the soup. And now it's, it's changing the flavor mm. of the soup. And the beet has, a, has the earthiness, of course, but there's a cleanness to the broth. I don't know if that's a lemon or something. So juxtaposed with the richness of the beef, it kind of makes it, it softens what you would think would be a heavier kind of item. Exactly. Also, we make these broths on the lighter side for the summer. Um, as it gets colder, we'll maybe go a little thicker, but they are meant to be, I think that's most people's impression is like, oh, it's a lot lighter than I was expecting, and it feels really soothing even yeah. in the hot weather. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us, and I totally think this was a better decision than appearing in a court of law in a business suit every day. <laughs> I think so too, thank you. Melanie Shurka, 
Her Cuba restaurant is called, fittingly enough, Cuba. Mm. And you can see a picture of that gorgeous bead broth. It's really amazing uh, on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And also pictures of the dumpling. Uh, Excuse me, Cuba themselves. There we go. Thank Mm -hmm. you. All right, coming up, Chris Taylor of Grizzly Bear suggests a song for you to listen to this weekend. And buzzy author Jenny Zhang shares a list of her favorite sour things when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll get a sweetly sour guest list from author Jenny Zhang. I'm imagining a dinner party with only like Sour Patch Kids and those sour straws. Actually, I would kind of really enjoy that. You might, but it would only be you and five-year-olds. That's so a good maybe. point. But that could, could be fun. <laughs> First, let's learn some etiquette. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and usually we pose them to a celebrity. But today, we pose them to etiquette celebrities. We are talking about, of course, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandkids of etiquette icon Emily Post herself, and they are co-hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette. Lizzie and Dan, happy end of summer. Hey, happy end of summer. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to be with you. You know, the end of summer, um, although when it's really hot out, we greet it with joy or we're excited that it's ending. But for many people, it means back to school, Mm -hmm. which isn't always a joyous time. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and this leads to a question. My nephew's actually going off to college for the first time. I can't believe he's that old. Oh my God. And so I was writing him the uncle letter about advice, which I clearly can't letter. talk about on radio. <laughs> Broadcast um, unfriendly. But it occurs to me that there are some polite things we could discuss here because he, for the first time, won't have his own bedroom. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering, what are some of the important etiquette things to keep in mind when you're joined by a dorm mate? This is what my first book at the Institute was on. It was on life on your own for the first time. Oh, wow. And I will say it is tough. I think you have no idea who this other person is going to be, what their preferences are going to be. So my best advice is be open. Mm. Be ready to communicate and be ready to have a lot of patience (laughs) and also be ready to not get any of those good things in return. You just have no idea who you're going to be with. I mean, I had one roommate who disappeared. I had another who was there all the time. It's like... Could be a friend for life. Could be not. (laughs) (laughs) Is there something that you hear from dorm mates a lot that is actually a pretty simple solve and yet people are never getting it right? Yeah, actually, it's light. Someone needs to stay up and study. They don't really like going to the library Mm. using the common room and they need a light on. So I say buy eye shades, buy those little masks that you put on over your eyes and that can help. All right. There you go, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> my nephew out in <laughs> Purdue in Indiana. Good luck. Study hard. Have fun. That's yeah, right. exactly. With that, I think it's time for some listener letters. Here's something from Bob from Norristown, Pennsylvania. He says, my wife maintains that thank you cards that have thank you printed on them are gauche <laughs> and that plain generic ones with, of course, a sincere handwritten message are preferable. Is that true? Thanks. Points for using the word gauche. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Spelled it right, too. I like ones that are just plain. I like to include the thanks mm-hmm. in the body of the note. I like to have it in my own handwriting. But mm-hmm. the best is the enemy of the good. Yeah. We don't love having thank you printed on it. It's not tacky. It's not rude. There's nothing wrong with it, first of all. It's a taste thing. And Dan and I both prefer not having it on. And then we sure enough got some stationery that we ordered through Emily Post that had thank you on our little thank you yeah. note cards. And we were just going like, really? Did we really just do that? <laughs> all right. There you go, Bob. I'm not calling you gauche. I'm just saying your wife isn't coming from nowhere with that comment, right? I think is what we're saying. Yeah. But good for both of you for writing thank you notes. Our next question comes from Melissa. She sent it to us via email and she wrote, 
A friend sent an invitation to her wedding addressed only to me. Mm. I've been married for years, and the bride-to-be has met my husband. But his name was excluded, and there was a disclaimer on the invite. Quote, due to limited space, additional guests cannot be accommodated. Oh, wow. Now, by the way, this came three days after the bride solicited free wedding services from my business. (laughs) I've heard of couples requesting children do not attend, but spouses just seems odd and frankly a little rude. Maybe this was just a courtesy invite sent out of obligation since she asked for my help. So I have two thoughts on this one. I'm going to shock the heck out of my, my co-president over here. The first thought is it's absolutely rude. This is wrong. You do not send a wedding invitation to a couple with one of the couple off of it. Yeah. Etiquette, two thumbs down. Yeah, two thumbs down. <laughs> this is just bad. You just don't do that. Yeah. And then there's this little singleton voice in my head that says, wait a minute. Why is it that when people are married that we automatically assume they have to and it would be insulting to not invite both of them? Dan's like going, oh boy, give it to me because I put it out there. What do you think? <laughs> because it creates a problem in that relationship. Yes. BS. Guaranteed. I call BS. What, what are you talking about? Of course it does. The single person, there isn't a guaranteed problem. You can invite a single person as just a single person for all of those very valid considerations. These are really expensive spots, and they're hard to, to yeah, make these choices. You mean where you wouldn't be adding a plus one to them. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly, exactly. If it's a married couple, you have to treat them as a married couple. I mean, I'm just catching up on a year after the fact, The Crown, which is <laughs> yeah. up for some Emmy Awards. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it's and so the, the good. the whole Wallace Simpson in Duke of Windsor, right? This is the core of the, one of the problems. Like, Seriously? you're not inviting my wife yes. to the coronation. Yes, You're not course. inviting my wife to the funeral. You've got to include her. You can rend an entire country asunder That's with right. this kind of problem. Empires have fallen. For God's this. sake, Lizzie. I'm giving thanks for so many things right now. I know, right? My host's helping me hold the line here. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. For the record, I think it's fine to invite couples. I just thought I'd cause a little trouble. Dan, please. And also, <laughs> uh, someone else who's late to the party, The Crown. It's such a good show. You're welcome. Yes. We, and, we, you can join my year-behind TV club. Um, indeed. I'm actually going to be catching up on uh, The Simpsons, actually, starting Breaking Bad is so. next on my list. Um, for what it's worth, none of these shows advertise on the Dinner Party download, <laughs> by the way. All right, next, we've got a question from Amanda via email. She says, I have a family member that got married in December in a private ceremony I was lucky to be part of. This couple is a little non-traditional, though. They're also having a destination reception later this year. What? And the bride's having a bridal shower and bachelor party this year. Mm -mm. Since the shower was happening after the wedding, I figured it was just a little extra celebration for the bride. But I've learned she's registered and expects gifts for it. So she's already married. And expects reception guests to spend thousands of dollars to attend a reception, and now she expects shower gifts. Is she being a gift grubber, or am I overreacting? Ask Amanda. So it's like we're doing everything in reverse. Bass backwards. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all for lots of parties, but when you start putting together registries, you start putting uh, the idea in people's minds that you're expecting gifts. Call it a ladies' night. Call it a celebratory then Posting. it's not Wedding, a shower. shower. Like, that's the thing, though. Then it's not a shower. If you're throwing a shower, that's gifts. That's usually a registry's involved. Sorry. Mm, like, I'm throwing yeah. down that line. The fact that it's happening after the wedding, that's questionable for sure. But if this is a non-traditional couple and if this is how they've explained to everyone that they're running the schedule, guess what, folks? You can always say, no, thanks, and yeah. you're not on the hook for a gift or anything. Well, look, also Lizzie literally wrote the book on this, so I'm going to defer. <laughs> I mean, of course, you're the expert. I defer to that. All right, that's sadly all we've got this week. Lizzie and Dan, thanks as always for telling our listeners how to behave. You are most welcome. It is always a pleasure. I'm hoping we gave them something to work with. <laughs> we gave them probably too much. 
Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 19th edition, and co-hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette. And folks, if someone invites you to a bridal shower when they're already married, we are here to help. Or at least to riff amusingly about your situation. That's right. Submit your dilemma to us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest today is Jenny Zhang. She writes fierce, funny, form-busting poetry and articles for the influential online magazine Rookie. Her new short story collection is the first book published by Lena Dunham's new imprint called Lenny. Zhang's stories revolve around young women whose families immigrated to New York from China. But these aren't your typical immigrant tales. And these daughters are modern, offbeat, and dare we say vulgar. We do dare. Here's Jenny and her list. I'm Jenny Zhang, and I wrote this collection of short stories called Sour Heart. And I'm kind of interested in characters who go rancid a little bit. So here are a couple of cultural artifacts, books, poems, things from TV that I think really highlight and delight in sourness. So my first pick is The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. It's basically about this girl, Mary Lennox, who is described consistently, pretty cruelly, as very disagreeable. Cholera wipes out her entire family. So Mary Lennox is sent off to live with like a distant uncle out in the bleak English moors, and she discovers a secret garden. And little by little, through her adventures and her exploration, she brightens up and she becomes full of life and she feels I would say safe finally it's not that she transforms but I think it's more like the layers of her are peeled back and especially the protective layers they soften you know I think a lot of young women can relate to this character because in fact Mary is a sweet lovely, curious, imaginative young girl. But, you know, in the modern sense, we would say she has resting bitch face, you know, like, and that's something we level against young women a lot, which is like, why don't you smile? And sometimes it can feel like our outsides don't match our insides, or once our outsides have been deemed as sour, we're not given an opportunity to express our inner world. So it's Sounds like a very dark story, but it's actually a story that's full of light and truly one of the most heartwarming children's stories I've ever read. So next on my list is this show, Pulling. It was a BBC Three series written by Sharon Horgan, who also stars in the show. And she also is behind Catastrophe, that really amazing Amazon series. Pulling, Sharon Horgan, I think, said in an interview, she was like, I wanted to make a show where the girls get to tell all the jokes. Like, they're the ones who get to be funny. I like to say it's sort of like a darker and more demented Sex in the City. Nothing is considered too sacred. And in one of my favorite episodes, the central couple is Donna and Carl. So Donna has left Carl, and Carl has become extremely depressed and has tried to kill himself. What if I came in five minutes later? He would be dead. He would be hanging there, dead. He said he changed his mind, didn't he? Karen, 
He tried to kill himself. Oh, come on, who hasn't? Eventually, he gets better. You know, he moves on. He joins a gym. He starts getting juices. And Donna becomes incredibly jealous and angry at how quickly he's gone over his suicidal thoughts. So, getting fit. Yeah. It's weird seeing you sweat when you're not eating a kebab. Yeah, well, I thought I'd join. You know I mean, it's just around the corner. If you get a year's membership, you get to do... Are you going to kill yourself again, Carl? I'm just getting a bit fitter. Oh, for God's sake. Multiple times, other characters comment on these women and they're like, you're a horrible woman. <laughs> and I kind of really like that um, we get to follow these women who are horrible but also very human. My last favorite sour thing in culture is the poet Morgan Parker, who is the author of the collection There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. Morgan is an incredible American poet. She writes a lot about being a black woman in America. In these poems, Morgan often channels different figures. And in this one poem called The President's Wife, she imagines herself as Michelle Obama. It's this kind of list poem, and it's a litany of questions that range from, you know, very trivial to inescapably deep. This is how the poem starts. Sometimes I wonder, is Beyonce who she says she is? Will I accidentally live forever and be sentenced to smile at men I wish were dead? Is loneliness cultural? Are lips true? Is a mother still a self? There's like a deep level of sourness that these poems and this poem is engaging on. But a lot of the history of how this country was founded is a sour history. It's, it's like when people who experience racism make fun of racism. I think of that as a kind of the highest echelon of sour humor. I love that, and Morgan does that in this poem really beautifully. It's not like I'm like, let's reclaim sour and make it the new sweet. <laughs> it's not that, but on a basic level, I get a headache when I eat something sweet. I get bored when someone is saccharine. And I find that sourness has so much more depth. The guest list from Jenny Zhang, her story collection Sour Heart, is out now. Sweet. Uh, and folks, uh, that's the dinner party download for this week. Next week, we've got lots of wonderful stuff, including a soundtrack for a cat-friendly party, mm. as DJed by the band Future Islands. Teller made for our resident cat lover. Yes, that would be me. Mittens and I are eagerly awaiting this next episode. I'll bring my Allegra. Please. Uh, radio friends, please do check out some special episodes we've been posting on our podcast feed. Mm. Among other treats, you'll hear from the sound design team behind the Emmy-nominated Stranger Things, the only people on Earth who can make a demigod Squeal. That sounds creepy. The Dinner Party Download comes to you from senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineer Chris Clark. And now here is One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. After a five-year hibernation, the band Grizzly Bear uh-huh. is back with a new album called Painted Ruins. <laughs> to celebrate, we actually asked bandmate and frequent cook Chris Taylor to craft his ideal three-course meal along with some song pairings. I take putting a menu together maybe too seriously sometimes. 
He is not kidding. For example, uh, he came up with a dish that includes, quote, death trumpet mushroom dust. Mm. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org to see Chris's entire menu and try it if you dare. Uh, but do that right after you listen to his band's new song. It is called Sistole. Bon Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right. Great show, man. Cool. Yeah. And I got to bounce. I'm going to my dad's bachelor party. Aw, when's the wedding? I didn't know that. Oh, he's been married since 1966. He's just getting around to it now. Oh, trendy. Yeah, that's my dad. <laughs>